It's a joy to be back with you. We are talking about manhood. This is week three of our six-week series on the sexes. You will recall that we are using the term the sexes and not the term gender because the sexes refers to something that is hard and fast, something that is fixed, made by God, whereas gender tends to refer to something that is more fluid. I'm not saying if you ever use the word gender, you know, a little uh, Bible fairy will come and zap you with a little tiny little wand or something like this. I am saying that's the term I prefer to use even in setting out the conversation. It's intentional. Your language matters, right? Because I want to convey to somebody when I'm talking about manhood and womanhood that I am not talking about mere opinion. I'm not talking about something that psychologists have studied and given me some interesting data on. I'm not talking about something that's merely historical. I have opinions on manhood, you know, in the past. I'm talking about something that God himself made, God designed, and God has done. Now, not everybody's going to agree with me on that count. Many people today are going to disagree with me and with you on these matters with a church like this, which stands for rock-solid biblical truth. And yet, when I… questions of public theology and Christ and culture and how to engage a secular culture like ours, that's a really a much broader subject perhaps, um, you know, to tackle somewhere down the line. But suffice it to say that what the Bible teaches is our apologetic. What the Bible teaches shapes our cultural witness. In other words, I just want to say at the outset this morning before we dive in to, uh, to the three-pronged call to manhood from Scripture, I just want to say we don't have like a softer biblical witness that we bring into the public square, that we bring into the city council meeting, that we bring into the PTA meeting, that our kids are trained, our, our eighth graders bring into, you know, classrooms. There, there's, not, there's not Bible A and Bible B and Bible A is for Sunday morning preaching and, oh man, we really dive into the text and work out all the phrasing and the Greek and the Hebrew. And then there's Bible B, and that's what we take into our workplace. That's what you take into the lunchroom at your secular uh, job environment. And in Bible B is much softer than Bible A and doesn't require you to make metaphysical claims about the universe and the existence of God and the hard and fast design of God in the cosmos. No, no, no. Bible B is softer and, and lets you get out of the tricky conversations because you're being contextual or something like this. Listen, friends, all we have is the Bible. <laughs> the Bible is always the bedrock of our witness. Yes, there are different situations that require us to think carefully about what we say and we pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us in those moments and give us wisdom. We all do this. We must do this. So, so don't mishear me along those lines. If you're called to testify before the Kansas Senate, the, the Kansas House of Representatives on an issue like what we're covering here, you're going to think about that in, in a certain light and pray for wisdom and all sorts of things. But fundamentally, if that's your call in some form, what you're going to take with you in your moment of witness is biblical truth. And, and, and that's not like a, that's not a sad thing. That's not something that puts us on our back foot in our witness. That should give you immense confidence Students who are in a public school and whose classmates disagree with them on basically just about everything that we're talking about in, in this series more broadly, the very idea that God made the sexes and we're not evolved from gas, um, your, your, your confidence is the Word of God. It's not just that you have to speak the Word of God, it's that you should give thanks to God that wherever you go as a Christian, whatever age you are, However long you've been in the faith, a member of Christ's true church by His blood, you get to speak from the Scripture. This is the solid rock, right? Think, think about the metaphor we all learned in, in Sunday school or you've heard over the years in church that the wise man builds his house upon the rock. Christ teaches this, doesn't He? And so we're not standing on sand. Sometimes it almost is presented to us as if we're the ones standing on sand in the public square because we have the Bible and not everybody agrees with the Bible, you see. That's what I'm getting at here. Not everybody agrees with the Bible, so what are we supposed to do? Well, we've got to get rationalized truth claims that everybody can agree to, Christian, secular, Buddhist, Islam, whatever. We've got to get rational truth claims that everybody can then assent to. But, but actually, while we use arguments from design, science, natural revelation, so-called, God made the body, God made the created order. We use those arguments. 
that which is bedrock, that which is rock solid, that which is a firm foundation is the Bible. So we're not on our back foot here with these matters. We are on, friends, we are on the strongest possible ground there could be, metaphysically, ontologically, and epistemologically. There you go. There's your 50-cent word this morning. Epistemologically. I should have prepped in the car as I was driving the kids here to say that without fail, without faltering. It's been an interesting week in America, hasn't it? Because the very issues that we are talking about have been right in the headlines, haven't they? I mean, the shooting in Thousand Oak, California. Thousand Oaks. I have a friend out there in that very city and was just texting with him recently about what it's like on the ground. What took place in California? What took place is what has taken place dozens of times now in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, a, A young man, a grieved and alone, and psychologically, we would say, disturbed. Uh, His father died when he was young, and he has clear, we would say, issues in many respects. Took a gun, walked into a bar in California, and killed 12 people directly and wounded many, many more. Friends, did you know, do you know that 98% of public shooters are young men? 98% of them are young men. So here we are. This is what we're talking about, right? The state of modern men and how to help them. And our heart goes out uh, to situations like this, especially to the victims I'm talking about, because we just recognize this is such an unspeakable tragedy, and yet it's becoming normal to us. Uh, When the psychologist, secular psychologist Jordan Peterson was interviewed by the New York Times in May 2018, Peterson raised the issue of mass shootings by men and identified this not just as a sort of problem in society. This is a problem of men. This is what young men are doing. Uh, And Peterson made the, the claim that this shows in some form that many young men are in trouble, that our society, for whatever reason, and in truth, it's probably a variety of factors and reasons contributing to this horrible, horrible trend among us, but young men are struggling. And, uh, and the, the New York Times writer mocked Peterson in her article saying that, you know, he was saying that men are, uh, are set upon by a culture that doesn't like the patriarchy anymore. And so she was, in other words, just mocking the idea that men are under fire today. Her view was that, you know, men have been oppressing women for millennia, and so now you're bellyaching about struggling men. There's a range of issues you can talk about there, but fundamentally, when you're looking at headlines like the ones you saw this week and I saw this week, you recognize we are in a moment of genuine cultural crisis. This is a crisis that this is happening over and over again, and it is regularly young men. Something has happened. America is far less religious than it used to be. Young men often are isolated. They have much less connection to a religious body, certainly to Christian churches. The rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, is a real trend. The family has broken down in many respects. Divorce culture is rampant. Uh, There's violence culture that we could talk about. But most importantly, there is a sin nature in a man, any man, that has to be handled with great care. Young men, men, are especially volatile. It's not that women never do anything violent or murderous or something like this. That's not true. But it is the case that given the sin nature that is in both men and women in full, men are volatile. So parents, fathers and mothers, that little guy in your home, there's, there's some serious potential for good in that little guy. And there's something really to steward and watch carefully in a way that many parents around us, just in a common grace sense, are not. They're not uh, to the detriment of us all. Well, we have the privilege of building uh, young men not simply to a kind of traditional understanding of manhood. That's helpful. We build from the Scripture. We build from the very mind of God. So we are building off of what we talked about two weeks ago, the call to protect, the call to provide, and the call to lead. Uh, So we're diving in this morning to Judges 4. Turn with me to Judges 4. As you're turning there, framing comments. What we're talking about in terms of the role of a man is something that God calls, I'm arguing, a man too. So a man 
in a home, in a marriage, for example, may not be the smarter one in every case. I don't know, physically, may not be the taller or, uh, or physically stronger one, may not have more training than his wife. Uh, she may have a quicker mind. She may have more ideas. Uh, in, in technical terms, she may have more earning power in the workplace. There's all kinds of things we could say about distinctions between the sexes. Women, women are made by God and very much gifted by God. So fundamentally, what I'm not saying is that in every case, as you look at yourself as a man, you're going to see that necessarily you're the one who qualifies for this particular role that we are talking about. We're talking about the call of God on a man. Now, even as we talk about these three major elements of manhood, elements that John Piper, Wayne Grudem, uh, Al Mohler, many others have identified, and of course the Christian tradition more broadly has identified, we are talking about the call of God to men, but we're also talking, I think, about something that is in men. It's there. It's in there. In many cases, it's waiting to be woken up. It's waiting to be called out. It's waiting to be summoned. There's something about men in particular, I, I think, that is oriented to a challenge. Men need a challenge to thrive, and they want a challenge to wake up and, and, and to put weight on their shoulders. And I think, as we'll see, that's even a biblical call. I think that's embedded within the very substructure of the Old Testament and the New Testament itself. More on that to come. First, the call to protect Judges 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of your truth. I pray that you would confront us and challenge us, Lord. We're bringing many backgrounds and conceptions and ideas and even teachings on these matters, and I pray simply, not that, not that these people would be in any way shaped by me, but that they would be shaped by your holy word. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. In this passage, what we're going to zero in on just briefly, we have a number of places to go this morning, is that Deborah does not seek martial glory, as you could call it, warrior glory for herself. Deborah is often pointed to in debates between complementarians, which is the view that I'm arguing for this morning, and egalitarians who argue that there are no distinct roles for men or women in Scripture. We, we, we hold any role, man or woman alike, uh, interchangeably, effectively, in the home and the church. In this passage, contra what you will hear egalitarians say, Deborah does not understand herself in some kind of triumphal role over Barak, does she? I mean, just look at the text itself. Deborah, Deborah calls Barak, which is itself a problem, to war. She reminds Barak in verse 6 of the Lord's call to gather his men and go into battle. And then in verse 8, Barak shows us that he is succumbing to the natural weakness of his flesh. If you'll go with me, I will go, but if you won't go with me, I will not go. Deborah, in verse 9, then assures him that she will go with him. She's a righteous and virtuous woman. She's not sinning in this, by the way. She's doing what she should do, but this is not an ideal circumstance, is it? And we don't hear that from the so-called chauvinistic man, 
Who do we hear it from? We hear it from Deborah, the prophetess. The the road on which you are going, verse 9, will not lead to your glory. Why? For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Is Deborah here articulating a kind of uh, view of womanhood that is substandard and that sees women as lesser than men? I guess that's an option, uh, an optional reading of the text. I don't think it's a necessary reading of the text in any way. I think what Deborah is calling upon is what we were talking about two weeks ago in terms of the archetype of manhood. Remember that the man is the one in Genesis 2, even before the fall, who is called to work the garden and who's called to what? Watch over the garden. Watch over the garden. And the man is the one who is supposed to see his wife and see her as made from his own body. The man is the one who is held responsible in Genesis 3 following the fall, though Eve is the one who has had most of the interaction with the serpent, who is Satan. Eve's the one who has had most of the interaction. But then when the Lord comes to judge the man and the woman for their sin, in the Hebrew, in Genesis chapter 3, when when the Lord says, where are you? It's not where are y'all, it's where are you? And it's a masculine singular pronoun. In other words, it's directed to Adam. What's the point I'm making? The point I'm making is that the Bible from the very start is teaching, not that men are better than women, not in any way, but that men are called to protect their wife and their children and their home. And this extends, apparently, not just uh, to the confines of a home, but far beyond it. In other words, it is supposed to be to the glory of Barak that he would defeat Sisera in battle as a man. Deborah tries to wake Barak up to this. Deborah does not say, oh, this road that you are going, um, verse 9, is glorious for the Lord will sell Sisera into my hand. No, she decries the cowardice of Barak. She decries that a man would hide behind a woman, effectively, not because Deborah understands herself as substandard, but because the man is called by God himself, per the very design of God in the garden, to step up and put his own life on the line for the good of women. This is coded into the very design of God. And interestingly, to refer back to the Thousand Oaks shooting of this very week, there were numerous reports of men again, in a common grace way, throwing themselves in front of women in this bar, in this horrible moment, taking, literally taking bullets for women, as happened, uh, uh, as we heard in many reports in Las Vegas a year ago in another shooting. In fact, one man, I read one report of a man taking a chair and throwing it through a window when the shooter in California was reloading and effectively like yelling at a woman to jump through. And, and I think he actually pitched her through the window to help her. This is not because in those moments we're seeing toxic masculinity. This is because we are seeing men use their God-given strength on average to bless and protect women. And if this is said nowhere else that you ever hear, let it be said here from the Scripture. This is the call of God to men. This is embedded in a man's DNA. He may not know it. He may not feel like it. It may not be the case that he bench presses 350 on a Monday morning. It is the case that this is the shape and design of manhood as we study the Scripture. This is going to be what David, jumping off of Judges 4, this is what David and his mighty men are going to do. You're going to see this in the story of David. He is going to lead an army of mighty men. You can read about them to go to war against Israel's enemies. And he is going to show, David is going to show just how powerful in the biblical narrative godly courage is. There is not going to be a moment in the history of Israel when uh, David and his men, for example, step aside and call the women to step up and take their turn in battle. No, the men of Israel understand that this is their God-given call, the call to protect. This is what Jesus himself is going to do when he dies on the cross. He is going to die on behalf of his bride. You see this in Ephesians 5. He is going to lay down his life 
for his bride. He is going to shed his blood to destroy and defeat the devil, the one who is harassing and trying to murder and kill eternally his bride. So this is not just a teaching that is found in the, in the ancient Near East and we study, oh, how interesting. 4,000 years ago, you know, Israelites lived this way. Fascinating. No, no, no. This is something that the very emblem of Christianity, Jesus Christ himself, is going to show us by his sacrificial substitutionary death. So, beyond just Genesis 3, uh, men have the call, I believe, to protect. We have the call to protect first and foremost, of course, in our homes, uh, certainly in our churches, but I think we actually have the call more broadly. I think Uh, In a common grace sense, men are the ones who should go to war on behalf of women in America. I know that there are numerous veterans in our own congregation along these lines. I don't think it's dishonorable, by the way, for a woman to, to enter the military in some form, but I do believe that men are called, by extension of this kind of teaching, these texts to go into battle on behalf of women and children. I don't think that is toxic masculinity. I think that that is the very fiber of virtuous, even godly, masculinity, even though these things are very much in flux today. The second call we should cover, and we're moving rapidly, I admit, is the call to provide. Men, I believe, as something that is embedded in us, have the call to provide for a wife and for children. Genesis 3 shows us this. Ironically, we see a key part of the identity of the sexes in the curse given to the man and the woman. We'll talk about the woman's portion of the curse in the next couple weeks that I teach, but here in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we see what the curse means for the man. Genesis 3, verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Why is this significant? Why are we talking about the curse in terms of a call on men of the new covenant era? Well, I think that this is a curse on the man's primary role and life. In other words, just as childbearing is cursed for Eve, childbearing being a capacity given Eve before the fall, so Eve was always, in other words, going to be the one who bore the children and nurtured them in the early years. In the same way, I think that the Lord is cursing Adam's primary role, primary sphere. In other words, Adam doesn't become a worker in the curse. He already, as we talked about a few weeks ago, was called to work. He was called to lead in working. He named the animals. He was called to work in the Garden of Eden. So this is core to his call from God, but also core, I believe, to the actual makeup of a man. I think that there is something that flourishes and thrives in a man when he is working and working hard. By the sweat of his face, now, as a result of sin, he's going to have to work. So he was called to work before the fall. Now the case is going to be that it will be hard to work. It will be a painful matter. He will sweat. The ground will effectively fight against him. He is the one, however, in Genesis 3 who was called to this. Eve is not called into the fields, you see. Adam is called into the fields. Adam is called to be the one who puts provision on his back for the family. This is not found only in the Old Covenant. We're always looking for the linkages between Old and New Covenant teaching, Old Testament and New Testament, and we do indeed find one in 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5, 7 through 15, we have the Apostle Paul really helpfully outline what he believes uh, in particular a woman should do, but by extension we see what a man should be doing. 1 Timothy 5 verse 7 in the New Testament, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Side note, in the Greek, this is, uh, this is gender neutral. This is in the neutral uh, uh, tone. Uh, so this is not first and foremost addressed to a man, 1 Timothy 5, 7, and 8. And yet... 
And yet, if you're reading the rest of the passage, you see who it is who would be expected to provide for their family. I think by extension, this passage actually teaches, 1 Timothy 5, 7 through 15, that if a man is not able to provide, you know, he, he has a, a disability, he loses his job, he dies, certainly, then, then a woman should actually see herself, perhaps temporarily, as the provider of the family. In other words, Paul is saying, somebody needs to provide for this family, but we'll clearly see in the verses that follow who it is that has to first step up and seek to provide. Let a widow, 1 Timothy, 7, uh, 1 Timothy 5 verse 9, excuse me, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have, Paul says, younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the, the, the adversary, excuse me, no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Okay, why reference this when I'm talking about manhood? It's clearly a passage mostly about womanhood, because you see there in verse 14 in particular, Paul's pattern for uh, a young woman, at least most young women, many young women, those not called to singleness, which is a, a fully God-honoring call, as we know from 1 Corinthians 7, Another text. This, though, is the call on most women. Uh, if, if a young woman's husband dies, what should she do? Should she seek out a place in the workplace, according to the Apostle Paul? She should marry, if she can, we understand, if God allows, bear children, manage the household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So, in other words, what we're seeing here is reinforcing what we already know from other texts in Scripture. There's no, there's no uh, clash or collision of visions here. We're seeing that uh, a young woman whose husband dies is called to the very same thing that is called for in Titus 2, 3 through 5, for example. So, a woman's call is primarily to be a child raiser and homemaker in those years, especially when the children are young. Things, of course, change. Things are different before the children come, and after the children come, there's freedom and some gray area, and, and couples have to work through that as they see fit. It's not that a woman has to work after the kids are, are raised or something like this. There's, there's freedom there, but uh, I think it is a very different situation when the kids are young. Nonetheless, who is it then that is expected to provide? If this is what the younger widows are doing, well, what happens if they marry? Well, the man is not the one who is called to bear children. That would be difficult. The man is not the one who is called here to manage a household. Uh, the man is the one, we, we understand by extension, who is called to provide for the family. If that man does not do so, he is worse than an unbeliever. He has denied the faith. So, men, listen to me. To pull all this together, a man who will not put provision on his back, not that a woman couldn't contribute to that provision, of course, in a Proverbs 31 sense, even with kids in the home, but a man who is, I, my language is chosen very carefully, a man who does not put the burden of provision on his back, according to the Apostle Paul, this isn't, isn't my hot take, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Some of the strongest words Paul uses to talk about a member of the Christian church Denied the, whoa, like maybe he's not, maybe he's not living his optimal spiritual life, Paul, but I, it seems a little strong to say that he's worse than an unbeliever. This is getting, this is not softened, modern, evangelical, lukewarm teaching. This is the strong water of the Bible. The Bible calls men, as God allows, as much as they can, as much as we can, to step up and understand the role of provision as on our shoulders in marriage, of course, and to do everything we humanly can to free our wives, to raise our children as God gives that gift, if He gives that gift, and to make a home which is fully honorable to the Lord, glorifying to the Lord. Uh, we're not Marxists. We don't believe that only things that earn a paycheck have value. We are Christians. We believe that the making of a home is a precious and beautiful and very hard to quantify thing, but it matters when you step into a home that is managed well and run well. 
um, it, it has a profound effect on you, even though, again, it's hard to quantify why. Why? Uh, there's not a dollar amount necessarily you can place on that happy, warm, congenial, uh, beautifully run home, and yet it's a thing in the Scripture. may not be a thing in the culture, but it's a, a thing that endures in the Scripture. So there's such a beautiful order here. That's what I want us to see. There's, there's gray areas and hard questions to ask about provision and seasons of life and what kind of role a, a Proverbs 31 woman takes to contribute if, if the, you know, the salary is not as high as it would, we'd like it to be for the man. There's, there's questions to answer there. We have elders in the local church in part for that reason, to help us as congregants work through those things. So, hear me clearly on that matter. And yet, there is such a beautiful symmetry and order to the, the biblical design. It is fundamentally that a man would go hard on behalf of his family. He would just go hard to provide. I remember one theologian years back saying, a man should be so dedicated to provision for his wife and children that he, he will, they will live in a trailer park if he has to, and people may do that here. They will live in a trailer park in order that, that he would be able to free his wife uh, to raise those children and to, to manage that home. If that is you, if that is the case for you, if, you, if your family is making significantly less than you could make, which is, I'm guessing, the case, certainly the case in my house. My wife, I didn't marry an ungifted woman, okay, so that I could put her in the house and she wouldn't do anything. I married, like, tons of complementarian men. I actually wanted a gifted, godly woman who, who would bless and challenge me and, and be this wonderful life partner with me. It's kind of a weird phrase, but anyway. Uh, and, and so this woman, my, my wife, is the daughter of a theologian. She's the daughter of Bruce Ware, the theologian. She has better comments about Rick's sermons on the way home than I do. She's really gifted and really sharp. Um, she was recommended for a PhD at Wheaton, uh, Wheaton College. Uh, she is a classically trained pianist. Um, she's just a really sharp woman, and uh, I'm not threatened by that. I, I love that. I think that's a beautiful thing. And, and this, this talk about, you know, a woman not using her gifts, a woman like my wife, um, she's using her gifts. She's using them in a very powerful way, just as many of you women have done and are doing and, and pray to do. But there is a beautiful symmetry, I, I pray, we're, we're sinners, I'm a sinner, she's a sinner, but there's a beautiful symmetry to our home where I am seeking to free her up to use her gifts to raise our children to, to God's glory, unlike people around us. They're not trying to raise their kids to God's glory. Maybe they, maybe they love their kids in a natural way, but we're trying to create a biblical home to the glory of God. And so that, that is a key part of what I see myself doing. I'm, our family is taking in significantly less than this gifted woman, gifted woman could earn in the marketplace in order that, Lord willing, again, not perfect parents, but we would shape these children as best we can and, and that they would know the Lord and that they would serve the Lord however He calls them to. That's our goal. That is a value that is increasingly out of step with our culture, but, uh, but that is what we're seeking to do, I think, from the teaching of God's Word, certainly from the teaching we have received from those who love God's Word. The third call that we need to mention this morning is the call to lead, the call to lead on a man. Ephesians 5, I've already referenced this, we need to go there now. Ephesians 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Talk more about the wifely role, of course, in the next couple weeks, not today so much. For the husband is the head, kephale in the Greek, of the wife, even as Christ is the head, kephale, of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is a challenging verse, Ephesians 5, 28. In the same way, men, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The call here is that a husband would recognize that he is head of his wife, kephale, in the Greek, as I say. There's been a battle in scholarly circles over what kephale means. Uh, egalitarians have argued that it means source. Um, Wayne Grudem, I think, convincingly has responded and has shown that kephale never means source in the Bible, and even very, very, very rarely in extra-biblical literature, it means, it means authority, effectively. What does it mean when we say a husband then is the head of his wife? We don't mean that he is a king who rules over a subservient being. We don't mean that whatever he wants, he gets. We don't mean that he can take this God-given headship, whatever it means, and abuse it, use it for his, his own plundering gain. That is in no sense what headship means in the biblical text. Contra the stereotypes, contra the arguments against my position, our position this morning. What this means is fundamentally that the husband is in the role of Christ uh, in terms of this relationship. And Christ is indeed the leader of his bride. He is the authority over his bride. But what does Christ's leadership mean for Christ? It means that Christ leads how? In self-sacrifice, doesn't he? That's what Paul explicitly draws our attention to. He gave himself up for her as Christ loved the church. So the man, so the husband, so you, so me. We are called to love our wife by leading, make no mistake, in a profoundly self-sacrificial way. We can't, of course, make atonement for our wives. We are not called to. Uh, that's not our precise role. And so there is a sense in which Christ is head over his bride in a way that we could never, ever meet. And yet, out of the image of Christ, in the same way, verse 28, Paul says, which is striking, we should love our wives as our own bodies. Now, our leadership, of course, is embedded further in this passage in that wives are called to submit to their husbands. This does not mean, as we'll talk about more, this does not mean that whatever a husband says in a declarative sentence is automatically law in the home. It also doesn't mean, on the other hand, that the husband has an 11th hour trump card that he can play uh, at any point in any conversation and just get his will. It does mean that he is seen in a virtuous, happy, God-honoring way as the leader in the home. He is the one who is called to, to lead strategically. He is the one who is called to have a plan. He is the one who is called to lead in spiritual terms, of course, in the home. He leads the family in knowing the Lord, which I think by extension means he's the one who is bringing the word before the family and leading the family in prayer, even if he's not, by the way, as I've said already, even if he's not. Uh, super theologically trained, or even if he doesn't necessarily aspire immediately in this moment to be an elder, he still has this call. He still has this role. He is called to love his wife, and a major part of the way he loves his wife is by leading her. And the shape of his leadership is never selfish. There is zero biblical argumentation behind that view. Men naturally incline to selfish leadership. I see it in myself, as I'm guessing you men see it in your own heart. But the Bible, contra the stereotypes against the Christian church and its teaching on gender roles, the Bible gives selfish men no comfort and no shelter. It calls us to the opposite idea, that we are called to be like Jesus himself, and lay our life down on behalf of our wife, first and foremost, and our children by extension. The single greatest key to marital happiness and marital flourishing is not to recognize that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. It is not to take a compatibility test online or in some other form. 
It is not to have a therapist talk with you two about ways that you can have mutual marriage. The single greatest key to marital happiness is found in the Scripture, and it is found in the assumption, the obedience to the teaching of God. If men will be these kind of men, and women will be this kind of women, then God will work in that marriage. Whatever is in the past, whatever sin there is, whatever weakness there is in either spouse, God will work as a husband and wife seek this to live according to this blueprint and this plan for His glory. God will be honored by this kind of marriage. There's all kinds of things to say about our personalities and what we like to do and our hobbies and our traits. There's all kinds of things to learn there. There's, there's different things to learn from medicine and even psychology on these matters, the, the different workings of the female brain versus the male brain on average, not that everyone is the same on either side, but there's, there's lots to study there and think through and how, how do I fit the standard masculine blueprint? How does my wife fit the standard feminine blueprint? How do we not fit that blueprint? My wife and I determined that, uh, this is a little embarrassing to say, but I'm a more talkative man no one would ever guess that. You can laugh. I, I'm a more talkative man than the average kind of quieter man. So um, that's been a thing for Bethany and me. So there are ways that every man is going to fit, I think, the profile of the man that we think of. And then there are ways he's not. He's not. So marriage in part is figuring that out together and learning to live well together into some of that gray area, so-called, for both the man and the woman. And yet, when I am seeking the health of my marriage and my home, what's the blueprint to who, where do I go? Who shapes it? Who tells me how to live as a man? The Bible. The Bible tells me and you what I most, we most need to be godly men. It tells us what our marriages most need. You, you can, you and your spouse can be 100% compatible in terms of your hobbies. You and your spouse can be 0% compatible in terms of your hobbies. What, what your marriage most needs is not that compatibility psychologically understood. There's things to work out there, to be clear. But what you most need is, as a man, to lead in a Christ-like way. Recognizing this is going to involve repentance for all of us. No man, save one, lives up to this standard of manhood. All of us fail on many counts, and yet we are called to protect, provide for, and lead our wives and our children. If nobody else believes these things, let it be us who never let them go. We will be evangelistic, as I have been at pains to say in this humble little class, we will be evangelistic as we live according to biblical teaching. This kind of man will stand out as a public school teacher shaped by the Bible. This kind of man will stand out in a hospital working in different roles. This kind of man will stand out in financial planning situations. This kind of man will stand out in the military. This kind of man will stand out wherever he is because he is a Christ-captured and Christ-like by the grace of God man. How am I going to be a witness in my context? Be a godly man by the power of God that is within you. The final thing I want to say this morning, there's so much to say about these things. There's so many conversations to have. I want to leave a few minutes for Q&A here. The final thing I want to say, though, in sum, is that in all of this, in terms of summing up what a biblical man is, we are called to courage. We are called to courage and a certain kind of courage, righteous courage, God-shaped courage. 1 Kings 2, 1 through 3, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. What is it that marks out a man? Somebody says, be a man. What is it that marks out a man in the biblical mind? To sum it all up, it's that he would be strong and show himself a man. However many words he speaks on a given day, 
whatever his IQ is or his EQ is, uh, however wide or narrow his shoulders are, whether he has been trained by a father, a godly man, or not. David's charge to Solomon stands, I think, as a call to men today to recognize that there is something in the biblical mind that marks out a man, and it is righteous strength. Men, you are never stronger than when you are resisting sin and you are seeking to train yourself for purposes of godliness when you are waking up earlier than you would like and you're reading the scripture and you are praying. I know Pastor Rick is talking about these things in weekly training sessions and Thursday mornings. You're never stronger than when you are dying to your flesh and your sin and your sexual lusts and you are pursuing holiness and purity and righteousness. You're never stronger than when you're claiming the riches of the gospel the gospel that is in Christ Jesus to overwhelm and overcome your natural weakness, that is when you are strong. Yes, by extension, we should be physically strong as much as we can be, but the, the core of biblical manhood is a righteous courage, a willingness to speak up when no one else will speak up on behalf of God, a willingness to do hard work that no one else wants to do. You think, well, okay, that's interesting for David speaking to his son Solomon, but surely that's the only place we find such a kind of old-fashioned call to manhood in Scripture. No. Think of what the Apostle Paul says about his apostleship in 2 Corinthians 11. He doesn't directly, directly say this is because of a man, but think of his example as a man who is planting churches and training up elders to be the pastor of churches. What, what example does Paul have to point to to the young men he trains? What, what, what's his life like along these lines? 2 Corinthians 11, 23, speaking of the super apostles uh, in contradistinction to him. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times, I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The Apostle Paul is teaching us here that to be a man is fundamentally to put the brunt of the hard work on your shoulders. This is in fulfillment of the other material we have talked about. We read the Bible canonically. We read the Bible as one whole. We, we seek to understand what is found in the Old Covenant and then what norms our behavior in the New Covenant. And we see that there is one voice of Scripture when it speaks to manly identity, manly courage. And it is grounded in, fundamentally, a persevering toughness funded by divine righteousness. Paul, Paul is, is the one pastors are looking to in the first century. Paul is the one who is shaping pastoral identity, and Paul is nothing if not profoundly courageous and tough, and Paul rebukes us today because we are trained, many of us, and we have embraced this lesson in some form as modern men. We are trained to be soft and to be weak and to lead with what we can't do, and to lead with what the Scripture isn't saying, and to neglect what the Scripture is plainly saying. It is calling us, by the grace of God, all of us, to die to our flesh, to die to our weakness, to die to our laziness and our passivity, and to rise in Christ Jesus as men of God, to be strong and show ourselves a man in Christ, 
1 Corinthians 16 says exactly the same thing. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. What does Paul say to the whole church? The whole church, the Corinthian church. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. A faithful translation if you look at the Greek word there. Act like men. Be strong. The whole church is called to act like men? How? Doesn't that go against what you've been saying, Strand, in terms of distinct sexes? Well, I think it's zeroing in on exactly what we're talking about. Righteous courage. The Corinthians are awash in sexual sin and debauchery in their culture, in their climate around them. And they are called to be courageous in a righteous way, powered by the cross of Christ where they are. So, in application then, to bring this to a close, and then just a couple minutes for questions, my argument is that from the Bible, men should pray and seek to be courageous in every sphere of life. Application then, your life in general, men, you should be tough and spiritually strong, fight Satan by the power of the Spirit in you, pray, call on the resources of divine grace, do not focus on how weak you are and what you cannot do. Focus on how strong you are in the Spirit, Romans 8.37, you're more than a conqueror, as the whole church is, and equip yourself where you're weak, mentally, physically, and emotionally to act on behalf of others, to be a righteous man of God. Your home, you can lead spiritually instead of checking out. This is a challenge for all of us to lead our family spiritually. There's not much time for some of us. Young kids, work, commute, exhaustion. It's hard, but we have a higher call than to give in to our weakness. We need to lead our families spiritually. Our marriage, we need to defend and speak up for our wife. We need, to, we need to seek a Christian marriage to lead in that when people around us are compromising on all fronts. As a single man, your treatment of women and children, what, is, what does this mean for you? You can risk your safety and comfort to help and protect them, whether from bad weather or from threatening circumstances. I remember visiting here almost two years ago and seeing men out in the parking lot, men, you know, telling me where to park and these sorts of things and, uh, and, and leading out in that. And then the winter, it's the winter months now, just about men are going to be out there bundling up for an hour at a time. Um, why? Because that's an application of what we're talking about. Stood out to me. Stood out to my wife, actually. Complementarian women love to see men being men of God, complementarian men. Nothing is, uh, in many cases, so encouraging, I think to a woman of God than that, whether single or married. Your church, men, you can be a part of leading out and making disciples and serving the church, whatever role God gives you. Your workplace, your community, you can speak the truth in love. You can put others before you. You can oppose evil when it presents itself. In all of these ways, you will show, you will show those around you something different than the unrighteous, weak, self-interested men found in Adam. We can be men found in Christ. That's our call.